Hello, and welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I'm your host, Viv, and some of you know me as Sober I Thrive. Make sure to visit our website on SobertownPodcast.com. You will find our free Zoom calendars, Todd's modules for your Sober Toolbox, Sober Recovery Stories, and our link to the Sobertown Facebook group on SobertownPodcast.com. I'll chat with guests and community members about topics related to sobriety and recovery. There are also a couple of sober communities called Boom, Rethink the Drink, and the I Am Sober app, where most of our website contributors met for SoberTownPodcast.com. Thank you so much, Sobertown, for tuning in. Our guest for today, some of you know her as Candice. And some of you know her all over the social media platforms as What Candace Said. She's a very special guest sharing her journey. And it is a hero's journey. So I'll let her introduce herself. Hi, Candace. Hi, Viv. How are you? Good, good. I'm so happy that you're here. I know that we've been wanting to have you on Sobertown because your story is so rich. And I know that you will resonate with so many people out there. And I just wanted to thank you so much for being with us. I hope that I in some way resonate with people and that me doing this in some way helps other people. That's why I'm here. Fantastic. And I'm happy to be here. Well, we're grateful for you being here as well. So I want to go ahead and let's just set the stage for the listeners and let us know, how did little Candace begin? How did I begin? Well, I was born and raised in Toronto and the suburbs of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I was raised majority of my life by a single mom. I have two siblings. I moved to a suburb of Toronto in halfway through high school. And then after high school, I went into nursing school and became a registered nurse. And shortly after I graduated and started working as a registered nurse, I thought, oh my gosh, I started working on a medicine floor and I remember thinking, crying every day, thinking, oh my goodness, if this is what nursing is like, I'm quitting. I'm quitting. <laughs> but I ended up as a new grad applying for a position in the intensive care unit and they wanted five years of nursing experience. I had one month. So I contacted the HR at department and I asked them, you know, I really, really want to want this opportunity because of it's a teaching hospital where I work. They were going to pay to train me to be a critical care nurse. And I knew I had no experience. And I thought, you know, this is so far. This is way out of left field. They're never going to hire me. But apparently this HR woman contacted the manager of that unit and, and told her, you should really interview this, this girl. You know, she's she, she really is eager about this. And so when I graduated, I graduated during SARS. 
and no one was hiring. So I got called in for an interview and the manager at the time said, Candace, I want to tell you that if it wasn't for that HR lady telling me that I should interview you, I would have thrown your resume in the garbage. And I said, oh my goodness, you know, well, this is starting off bad. So, but anyways, the, the interview went well. She ended up hiring me. I became trained as a critical care nurse straight out of school. I was 21 years old and I've remained working in the same ICU as a critical care nurse for almost two decades now. And wow. yeah, I grew up, you know, with like single mom, no money. Always had to work if I wanted stuff. I always had to work for it. I started working at 14 at McDonald's. You know, I, I always had to work for anything that I wanted. My mom just couldn't give it to us financially. But I never, ever felt that I wasn't loved or that, you know, a lot of... I ended up going to a therapist at one point in my life and her putting a big emphasis on the fact that you know, I was raised by a single mom and that this is what made me who I was. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not understanding me. My mom never made me feel that I was any less loved or, and I was surrounded by so many other single moms. It was like I had eight moms. There wasn't a dad, but people seem to think that if you're raised in a single mom or single parent household that you're lacking in something. And that therapist, she tried to convince me, but I, I, there was not happening. I'm like, listen, my mother is the most amazing woman in the world. And I'm telling you, my issues have nothing to do with the fact that I was raised by a single mom. And yeah, I, I, I graduated nursing school with serious, serious debt, but I, couldn't become an actress on Broadway, which is what I really wanted to be. <laughs> so nursing was my next calling and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. You've been doing it for quite a long time and just 21 years old and not sure, you know, if that, that this is what the nursing career had to hold for you. And all of a sudden you go into the intensive care unit. Literally, I walked in the door. I'm like, this is where I belong. I belong here. Like, I loved the intensity and, you know, the autonomy that nurses had in that unit. Doctors respected you so much and you had so much, like, like responsibility. But then when orders are given to us, it's like, okay, keep the patient between this and this. So we are the ones who control so much in regards to how the patient is cared for. And no one could understand what an ICU nurse does unless they themselves are an ICU patient. But then again, we don't get remembered all the time because most of our patients are on ventilators and they're in medically induced comas or comas for other reasons. And so... All my patients have open heart surgery. I work in the cardiovascular ICU. So everyone comes out from the operating room. Majority. It's changed. The dynamic has changed over the last 20 years. But mostly everyone's had bypass surgeries, adult congenital heart defects, valve repairs, heart transplants. And we take care of them immediately after they come out of the operating 
So I wake them up off the sedation and I, I take care of them. And it's a very high paced, crazy environment. But over the years, it's changed. The dynamic has changed. Medicine, hospitals have changed, especially since COVID. So, and COVID, oh my gosh, that's a whole other story that I think destroyed a lot of people. Psychologically, a lot of people are still suffering from the effects of COVID. Healthcare workers and everybody else. It, and, I, and I think that people should talk about that because we were on lockdown guys like we were on lockdown for two years and people think that just like with having a cancer diagnosis and going through cancer that there's not an element of psychological like despair or you know after you're like what the hell just happened and I think people need to talk about it more because there's a lot of people who during COVID, during lockdown, were in very dark places and substance abuse increased during that time. And during that time, my substance abuse was an issue and I'm sure it was an issue for a lot of people. And so, yeah, the ICU environment where I work has changed since I first started, but you know, everything with change, everything with change, it happens and you get used to it. You adapt and you're like the, the angel that is standing on their wings and, you know, nursing them back to, to health. I mean, that's such a beautiful. I don't view myself like that. <laughs> Not even, I just go to work. I just, I don't know. I, I don't see myself like that. I don't know why, but well, thank you. Yeah. No, yes, yes, definitely. I it's it's I can tell that it's such a compassionate and near and dear to your heart just the way that you light up talking about it. So I I I would like to if you could take us back. So what happened? You have such a rich story like we talked about and I'm going to let you go into your story so the listener can hear it beautifully um, from you. My story in regards to substance abuse However, it went for you. Yes, it was whatever you you know you want to share. It's your story. Okay, so this is sober town. So I guess I should. I got a lot of stuff I can talk about. I can talk all day. <laughs> if yes. you're on my Facebook page, you can see how long my posts are. I talk a lot, so I could talk a lot. But you know, I was never into drugs, even. I remember in high school, you know, I was in, I was always scared. I was always afraid of drugs. Like, what if something bad happens to me? What if, you know? So while my friends were experimenting with drugs and stuff, I, I just, I wasn't really ever into it. I was a social drinker, like through my, you know, when you're having bush parties as a teenager in the fields and you're drinking like Smirnoff ice or whatever it is, you know? Like I was very social, not, I, I remember having alcohol in my fridge and thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this, is this expired? Like I, I was never into substances. And when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, it's like the bottom fell out of my world. I got diagnosed with breast cancer at 36 years old. I 
found the lump. Well, actually, I say my two-year-old at the time, she's now seven. My two-year-old, we were just horsing around and she kind of like ran into me with open palms into my chest. And when she hit my left breast, it hurt so bad. And I said, oh my God, like, what is that? And so I just let it go. I never thought about it. But then I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and the pain was still there. And so I laid in my bed and I lifted up my left arm and I started doing, you know, a bre- my own breast exam and I found the lump. And I, and I had a family barbecue that day and I was thinking, oh my God, like, this doesn't feel right. The, you know, I, I know this, there's something, this is, this is not right. I don't know if it's because I'm a nurse and I know what I'm, what I've been told to look for. And anyways, so I went to the family barbecue and I kept on like running off to the bathroom to like feel this. Is it still there? Am I just imagining it? Like, you know, so I made an appointment with my doctor. I got in and they told me, yeah, we're not going to do a mammogram because you're under the age of 40 and you have no family history. And I said, okay. And then they still went ahead with the ultrasound. She put the probe on my breast and immediately said, ah, you know what? We're going to do that mammogram. It was ordered. We're just going to do it. And I was like, ah, no, no, no. Ah, no, no, no. There's something wrong. So I had the mammogram and then proceeded to continue with the, the ultrasound. And she was on my right breast for maybe 10 minutes and on my left breast breast for upwards of an hour. And in that area where I had felt the lump is where she was. I was crying. I, I was already crying. I already knew I was bawling. And um, after she was finished, she said, I'm going to have the radiologist come in and talk to you. And like, just knowing what I know, like, and just even going for ultrasounds when I was pregnant, why are you calling the radiologist in? Why are they coming to talk to me? And she says, oh, you're very upset. You're crying a lot. So she's just going to come and talk to you. When she left the room, I called my best friend, freaking out. I have cancer. I have breast cancer. I know I have breast cancer. And she's trying to reassure me. And I'm like, why is the radiologist coming to talk to me if I don't have cancer? And she's like, well, just it's just calm down. You know, it, it could be nothing. And so the radiologist came in and sat down in front of me and said, you know, if I wasn't 99% sure of what I'm about to tell you, I wouldn't tell you. But I'm pretty positive that you have breast cancer. It was like at that moment, literally Everything in the world looked different. Everything seemed different, sounded different. I was staring at the floor and the floor looked different. It was like everything was like not real. And she said, I know you just got off a night shift because I had just got off a night shift and went for my ultrasound. And she said, I know you're tired and I know you're alone, but I have a room set up. And I can biopsy this right now, or you can book another appointment. And I said, no, 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 like do it right now. Let's do it. So then after that, the ultrasound and the mammogram technician came in and they were all crying now because before that point, they couldn't say anything to me. They all knew, but they couldn't say anything until the radiologist had spoken to me. So they bring me into the room and they set me up on this cold, you know, table and 
It was those technicians, those strangers who stayed with me as I was crying while they biopsied my breast. So I went home with a with a diagnosis of breast cancer. I told my my then against my that my spouse at the time, and you know I told my mom. And I think that telling my mom was the worst thing in the world because I was a mom, and I knew that you know it was really hard for me to tell my mom. But she lived with me at the time. A week later, I got the confirmation. We all and then you know it went on from there. I lots of appointments and doctors, and then I signed my consent. I had a full left, like what it's called, a modified radical mastectomy, where they removed my left breast and all the tissues and all my lymph nodes from that that side. That is so in my arm, so twenty eight lymph nodes and my left breast. I opted out of reconstruction because I would have had to wait three weeks to have a plastic surgeon consult and I didn't want to wait anymore. I wanted the surgery done. And so I'm actually going to celebrate five years on June 27th, cancer-free, because that's when I had my surgery. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm so excited to celebrate that day. But after they removed my breast, I was in the recovery room and... Because of who I am and where I work, I pulled all the strings I could. I got in and he offered to do what they call a frozen section. So they inject your, your, you with dye to light up the, the lymph nodes in your breast. And then they take a sample from those lymph nodes and send it off for pathology. So my question to my surgeon was, well, what if it's positive? Then what? He's like, well, and he just kind of looked at me and he said, okay, Candace, here, how would I do this? He says, I'll send it for a frozen section during this, the OR, the operation. And while I'm removing, doing the mastectomy, they'll be doing the pathology quickly. We'll send it for a quick pathology. If it comes back positive, do you want me to remove all your lymph nodes? If your first lymph node, because if it's going to spread, it'll spread to the first lymph node in your breast. It's called the sentinel node. And if it's positive, do you want me to do a full clearance? And I said, yes. So I remember waking up in the recovery room and telling him telling me it had spread, that my lymph node was positive and that I knew that it was at least in one of my lymph nodes. And once it reaches your lymph nodes, that's the pathway to the rest of your body. So I flipped out. I was flipping out forever. So once I got the results back and everything, I found out it was in my first and second lymph nodes. So it was only two that were positive out of 28, which was amazing. But I had full body scans and just going through that whole process of like genetic testing and everything. I was so young. I had a two-year-old and a six-year-old and my life, like I could, like not even music sounded the same. I couldn't even enjoy music anymore. I couldn't, I was just in this dark place and everywhere I went, I was like, do these people have cancer? Like, you know, what about her? Does she have breast cancer? Does she know someone who's got breast cancer at 36? Like everything was like, I was consumed by it. So because it had spread, I had to go through chemotherapy and then radiation was recommended for me also. So that's where my substance abuse started after 
my mastectomy, they prescribed me Percocets. I started taking Percocets. I took it for pain after my mastectomy and I continued to take them. And then when I started chemo, I had to inject myself in my belly with medication that stimulates your bones to make bone marrow. It stimulates them to make more white blood cells. And this causes so much bone pain. So because of the bone pain, I continued with the Percocets all through chemotherapy. Chemotherapy finishes. I start radiation a month later. Radiation caused three degree, third degree burns. I'm still taking Percocets. The worst was radiation. People say chemo is bad, but man, radiation, like I, I cried. I cried all, I cry all the time. I'm surprised I'm not crying already. <laughs> I'm a crier and I used to wake up and I used to cry. I used to go to radiation and cry. The people, the technicians there were so amazing because you have to go for radiation every day, except for weekends. So you go, you have your radiation, they tattoo you. So I have four little blue dots still that they line you up in the machine and they literally zap you with radiation. And then they slowly are burning you from the inside out. So I had 25 rounds of that. And then they started me on a medication called tamoxifen, which essentially punches you in the face with medically induced menopause. So I went from a healthy, normal 36-year-old with normal hormones to a postmenopausal woman, like just like that. So with that, with that medication came depression, more pain, joint pain. I now have osteoarthritis. I, I still have pain all the time. And so the Percocets continued. I kept on taping them, kept on taking them. They kept on being prescribed. And I said, meh, they're being prescribed. I'm going to take them. So then I'm like, oh, I was taking them a lot. And I knew that, like, just as a nurse, I knew I was exceeding. Not the amount of oxy that's in the pill, but I was exceeding the amount of acetaminophen, the Tylenol that I should be taking daily. In a 24-hour period, I was exceeding that. And I knew that I was causing damage to my liver. Because I was popping them like Tic Tacs. Because you grow a tolerance to those things so fast. And so I was being prescribed like 200 a month. And I was running out before. And I would call my doctor, make up excuses so that I could get an early release. And then it just got to the point where I was like, this is crazy. Like I would go and I would need to take, I would need to take them every hour and a half because once they would start to wear off, the effects of the withdrawal would kick in so quickly. I had been taking them for so long. So then one day I ran out like three days before my prescription was due. And I said, okay, like I can't do this anymore. It, it was like destroying me. So I told my family at the time, okay, I'm going to go off these cold turkey and I'm going to be sick. Like I'm going to be really sick. And I popped my last, I remember I had three left. I popped those and I said, okay, that's it. And I waited for the withdrawals to start and they did. And I was hella sick. I know anybody out there who has come off of 
any sort of opioid, the especially cold turkey, the withdrawal is like, oh my gosh, it's worse than cancer treatment. Like I can honestly say that, like maybe not as bad as radiation. Radiation, my radiation burns, I couldn't wear a shirt for a month because I was so badly burned and all I could do was lay in bed with no shirt on and watch Netflix on my laptop. But coming off of that, off those Percocets, was literally hell on earth. And when you take them, you're happy, you know? You're all like, you get a high. And so I wasn't getting, I wasn't having that effect anymore. And so other things started to kick in and I started to feel other ways and I wasn't sleeping and the withdrawals, you know, that you can't stop moving. Your skin hurts, like you're, you're sweaty and then you're cold and then it's, you're just, you're in withdrawal. So to counteract that, I started taking shots of liquor. I'm like, ah, okay, I'll just, this takes the edge off a little bit. And then no, didn't, it didn't help it. Like didn't take it away, but it definitely took the edge off a little bit and would help me sleep. Or at least I thought, you know. So that's when I started to drink, was to get myself off Percocets, I started to drink. And then after the withdrawal period was over, my doctor was so mad at me because when I went in and I saw him and he was writing my prescription for like another refill, I started crying and I said, you know, I had to go off of them. He got so mad. He's like, you could have had a seizure. You could have had a cardiac event. You could have, you could have died, Candace. And I'm like, I know, I know. But if it would have gotten that bad, I would have gone to the hospital. And then he felt bad for in some way. What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, there's a word like facilitating it, like facilitating my opioid use by continuing to prescribe them and not noticing the signs of me being no longer needing them just for pain, but being dependent on them. I don't when people tell me that this is how their addiction started, that this is how I, I, I sympathize with them because we were taking them for a reason. And then our bodies became dependent on them. And we never asked for that. I never asked for that. I, I wish that I could have stopped them and there was no residual effects, but it was brutal. And so that's where I started, you know, with the alcohol. And after I was no longer on the Percocets, the drinking was mostly just at night, just so I could sleep and then it was just getting more and more and then I was drinking earlier and earlier and then I was getting the shakes halfway through the day if I hadn't started drinking yet and then I was like oh hmm. well oh well I don't care whatever I was so depressed I was in such a bad place in my life I was so lost I was so and a lot of that is to do with the the tamoxifen, with the anti-cancer medication I'm on. Like, it does cause depression. And I tried so many antidepressants, and they just made me so sick. Like, they made me weird, and I felt weird on them. And so we tried, like, three different kinds, but I was still drinking. And my drinking increased and increased, and I got separated, and then... 
I moved and I was around a lot of drinkers and every day, every day I was drinking every day. And then it got to the point where like, I couldn't even make dinner if I wasn't drinking. I had to like always be drinking. And then I was on a first name basis with the people at the beer store by my house. And I was just like, oh, like, this is so gross. Like, I knew it was gross, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I just kept on doing it. And I knew I was ruining my life. Like, I was a cancer survivor. Like, what am I doing? Why am I drinking? Like, you're such an idiot. Like, what are you doing to yourself? I had a lot of issues with, you know, being like with gaslighting and like psychological stuff that I had gone through, you know. So I had a lot of that still that I was carrying with me also. But I was becoming like a closet drinker. I was isolating myself from people because I didn't want them to know about my drinking. And yeah, I was there was empties hidden all over my house. And then I started to notice that it was affecting my children. And I wasn't able to get up in the morning and like take care of them the way I should have been. I was the Play-Doh mom. I was the mom who made Play-Doh for my kids' kindergarten classes. I went on field trips. I did everything with them. I baked with them. I we painted. We like I was that mom. I was the poster child for like mommy like I was just all my kids were my everything and I was all about them like I played with my little ponies I have two little girls like everything my life was all about them everything and nah my life was all about booze then it was like when can I get when can what time is it when can I start drinking and you know when you wake up in the morning and you know you have to do something and you down a beer just so that you could get ready to get to that point. Like I was like, this is just getting really, really bad. And I wasn't getting up. My kids were starting to miss school. And I also was like during COVID, a lot of this time was during COVID. And my kids couldn't handle being homeschooled like they wanted them to be. It was a really messed up system. The whole homeschooling, uh, kindergartner, and like she might have been in grade two or three at the time. And well, yeah, yeah, because she's or four. Yeah, she's, yeah, about grade maybe grade four. Yeah. And so I ended up having to homeschool them too. So I would have my, my beer in the kitchen and I'd be homeschooling and downing my drink, you know, and just so that I could function. I was never, you know, and then I said, okay, I'm done. I, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I went cold turkey off that too. And I was sick. I was really sick, but not anything compared to the other times. And they were they, like, that was a light bulb moment for me when I was like sitting outside drinking so that and my kids would be inside the house and I, I'd be outside with my neighbors who were also drinkers and I had lost all my friends I had isolated myself and I was just like what like I don't know I, I knew that it had to stop 
what happened was I had blood work done and my thyroid, because I had a thyroid condition from my early 20s, my thyroid blood work was very out of whack. My face was like a balloon. I don't know if you saw the picture that I posted with the side by side. Yeah. So, yeah, it was around that time that I was like, okay. So I asked my doctor, why is, you know, and he's like, well, what's different? And I said, well, I'm drinking a lot. And I'm always very forthcoming with my, with my physicians. And he says, are you drinking with your pills? And I said, yes. And he says, well, it's making them inactive. So that picture that I had posted and shared in Sobertown was of me at my worst when I, and I remember looking in the mirror at my face and being like, I look bloated. I look weird. But instead of stopping, I just took my medication and then started drinking a little while after. And then after that, I'm like, okay, you know what? Yeah, no, this is, this is my kids, like my kids, my kids, my kids, my kids. So I got to stop this. I'm a cancer survivor. My God, what's wrong with me? So I stopped and I didn't, I didn't go to any meetings or anything like that until my one month of sobriety. I stopped December 5th, 2022. So I was six months, three days ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Three days ago. Congratulations. I know, right? Thank you so much. And like, I know that, like, so on my one month, I went to a meeting and cried the whole time again. When I got up to receive my first two chips, I cried again. And, you know, everybody was very, very nice, warm, open, and welcoming to me. Oh my God, like, so amazing. Everybody was offering their phone numbers. I immediately got a sponsor on the first day. Like, it was amazing. And I did continue to go to a few meetings, but there was something about my situation that I didn't feel that others, like, I could resonate, like, others resonated with me. I, was, I hadn't been a drinker for, for like, a, an alcoholic because people would even debate whether or not I was an alcoholic. But if you look up the definition, I was. Even though it was only for a few years, I definitely was. And the people at meetings had a longer history with alcohol, a longer relationship with it. Mine was shorter. So although I never felt like they were necessarily judging me, I think that some people would question whether or not I was an alcoholic because it was such a short time. But believe me, I was. I was. When you can't function, when you can't do anything, when all you think about is that when you have tremors because you haven't had a drink, you are an alcoholic. It doesn't matter how long it's been. You definitely are. So I, I didn't continue to go to meetings and I don't go to meetings now. They're wonderful. And I encourage everybody to even go to just one. I enjoy going to them. I really, really did. But when I would hear other people's stories, when people would get up to share, I would be like, I've never had, I never got a DUI. 
I, I never got blackout drunk and was arrested. Like I would, I would almost never get blackout drunk in the five years. Like in sorry, in like the, the well, like three, maybe two and a half, three years that I was drinking every single day. I think I maybe blacked out five times, and one of the times was with my children, and I had to tell them I was sleepwalking, and I had fallen down my stairs. And I was, and I don't remember any of it. And I had to hear this recounted to me by my children. And I was mortified. I couldn't remember it. And when I would talk to other people and they'd be like, yeah, I don't remember last night. And they'd laugh. I'd be like, doesn't that bother you? I hate, like, I hate that feeling. That's why I was never a drinker. I hated that feeling. And so I wouldn't necessarily always get to a really, really super intoxicated state. Oh, but I was intoxicated. And then like the whole mommy wine culture, like to all my friends, it was normal. Four At four o'clock, mommy needs her wine. And I would be like, how, how, how is it that we're romanticizing, that we're glamorizing alcohol as moms? That it's like a reward at the end of a day. Or you wake up and you have a mimosa because your kids are screaming. How is it that that has become accepted in its society? How is it? And I'm like, I, I, that's disgusting. How are people? And that used, that started to bother me too. And the whole, you know, and, that, and I'm a nurse. And when you see the, these, these, I follow this one nurse on Instagram and he does these videos where nurses always need booze. And I'm like, why are you making no mommies don't need wine and neither do nurses. Maybe some do. Maybe they have a problem. And not all do, because I certainly do not. So after getting sober, it's the emotions. It's so brutal. Oh my gosh. I'm like, oh, that's why I would want to drink again. I'd be like, I just don't want to think about like how awful I was. And people, you know, like I, I, they were watching me spiral and no one was doing anything for me. Like, why weren't they helping me? Why were they just standing around? And I think about all of that now. And I'm just like, God, that's so awful. And yeah, and now when they know I'm sober, it's like, oh, I remember when you did this and when you did that. Remember that? And I'm like, guys, like, really? Why are you? It's, really, it's embarrassing. I don't want to hear that. And it's like they haven't really come across, oh, just have one too often. I have but not very often since I've been sober and you know, the emotions and the brain rewiring and all that stuff is really hard to deal with. And once you get over that hurdle, it gets a little easier. Then I went back to work and I think that some people knew about what I have about my, my substance abuse issues. And I'm, I've, you know, I feel like I've, been stigmatized to an extent because I know people know about it and they tiptoe around me a little bit and I wonder if it's because of what they think they know about me or 
I don't know. But yeah, getting sober was the best thing. And I still carry all those feelings with me though. And I don't know if they'll ever go away. The mommy guilt, you know, the remorse of how much time I lost because I was just so all about booze. Like I just, it's just crazy when you come out the other side and then you realize how many people you've lost and you try to mend bridges and you get responses like, well, while you were gone, I developed friendships with other people. I've had friends say that to me and I'm like, but you know, it's really painful. It's so painful for people to no longer want to be around you because they know that you've had a substance abuse problem and it happens all the time. It really does. Even your closest friends, you think that they're always going to love you and be there for you. And part of becoming sober is accepting that these people are no longer there for me. They weren't there for me when I was spiraling. And now that I'm above water, they're they're not there for me now either. And on top of all the other feelings that you have, that's, that's a hard one to swallow. It really is. Yeah, because you've been through so much from your cancer diagnosis and then going through the treatment and then going through the, the Percocets for the pain that you were going through. So the feelings with the, with, the, with the Percocets and then getting off of that and then going into the alcohol now off of all the alcohol and all everything now you're in the position where all the feelings and you're it's almost from what you're saying is looking back and you're like trying to make sense of everything but what i've also seen is that you made such brilliant beautiful sense because on your social media it's like you are you make perfect sense out of what's happened to you and doing this type of forum to help others as we were talking before you were like yeah it's like people that come from being a cancer survivor have to deal with the surviving part Mm -hmm. when did the social media platform begin what happened i've always been a social media person when instagram came out it was only available for apple and i've never been an apple person don't hate i've always been an android person (laughs) so as soon as instagram became available for android i downloaded it and what candace said was was created that was probably my youngest was about six months old, and she's going to be 12 next month. So I've had my same Instagram profile all these years. I have people who have been following me for that long. And Twitter, 
I no longer deal with. I have TikTok and what Candace said there also. And TikTok was fun. I had fun with TikTok. And actually, it's good that you said that about social media. Another thing that made me want to get sober was finding sober people on TikTok. And I met this woman and she was openly living her sober life. And I mean, with a loudspeaker, talking about it, sharing her experiences. And I looked at her life and I'm like, oh my God, I want to be her. I can be her. I can be her. I don't have to be this mess that I am. I want to be like her. And so that that was also TikTok also. And then there was a, a bunch of other people that I followed. And there's almost like a sober movement. And I was watching on the news that alcohol sales have decreased by 25%. That's the awesome. LCBO, yeah. And like they were saying the LCBO here in Canada and Ontario, I don't know where, but sales have gone down by 25%. And when I started to get sober, it's almost like I started to realize, recognize all these other people going sober on social media. And I was like, wow. And I'm like, okay, so there's people who I can talk to. I had one family member who I could talk to. And if she ever hears this podcast or sees this, she's going to know exactly who she is because I knew of her issues. And I reached out to her when I was in my worst withdrawals. And she would be like, Candace, you're going to be okay. You know, and she would tell me things that would have helped her. And I used to live on slushies. Like it was the weirdest things that I would have to like always be doing. But social media, to me, I feel is huge. I've been to actual meetups where I've met people from all over from social media, from Twitter and from Instagram. When I had Twitter, I don't do Twitter anymore, but from Instagram. And then I made my Facebook page only two months ago. And it's what Candace, I used to have a Facebook page before, but I never utilized it. But this time I made the Facebook page two months ago on, on Facebook. And what Candace said, because I wanted to talk about this. I wanted to talk about cancer. I wanted to talk about, I wanted to share my hobbies. My hobbies have kept me so grounded. Tell us and, about them. Oh, I love junk journaling and scrapbooking and miniatures. I make like miniature stuff. And, you know, when I'm in that mode, I don't think about booze. I don't think about, and I think that people who are overcoming stuff like this, oh my gosh, find something that you love. Find a hobby, anything anything. And I promise you, it will take your mind and find other people who also love it that you can share with them. And that's what my Facebook page has allowed me to do. And, you know, in the beginning, I would share about breast cancer. And, you know, when I shared that post about my sobriety on my six month, four days ago, I was scared because every time I've posted about sobriety on my Facebook page before, or any other platform for that matter, I lose followers. It happens. Yeah. Because people stigmatize you. And I was like, oh, okay, I forget it. Through it. Forget it. I'm posting it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I just posted it and held my breath because 
I I did lose followers. I did. Because there's people out there who drink who think that my sobriety in some way has something to do with them. It has nothing to do with you. I'm sober for me. You can do whatever you want with your life. I am telling, I am sharing my truth because this is why it was bad for me. This is why I did it. This is why not. It has So it's almost like maybe they're fearful that they have a problem too. And they just unfollow you because they don't want to see something that they're not ready to face themselves. That's very profound, you know, to come. Does that make sense? So absolutely, because you're in in your hour. Drinking does not have to do with anybody else's drinking. It's for us. But in some way, like you said, you're you're recovering out loud and it makes people uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, because it makes them look within you're recovering for you. You are talking about this because this is something very real that happened to you, just like everything that has happened to you. But also you share, I was looking on your platform and I see people that are so inspired by you, just like you were inspired. I was, and I let those people know, but I I don't like, unfortunately, those people aren't as humbled. I'm a very humble person. And I don't, I feel like those people, like the one woman in particular, she's kind of blown up on TikTok and she's not as humble as she was before. And when I reach out, reach out to her, she doesn't even respond to me now because she's too cool. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. Like it, whatever, you know, but I was inspired by seeing that because I knew I, like they always say, the first thing is that you have to admit that you have a problem. And I knew I had a problem long before I stopped. But just seeing how someone can be happy and out hiking and doing things that they enjoy and they're not drinking. Like, oh my gosh, I want that so bad. I want to be able to do stuff without drinking so bad. I just wanted it so, so bad. And, you know, when people, like when I put, like I said, I post about sobriety and people like drop me like instantly. And I'm like, but why? And and if I bring up, you know, the whole mommy wine culture with people, they get mad. They get irritated because don't take away their wine. God forbid. And when I say, like, stop glamorizing it, stop romanticizing it, like, it's ridiculous. Like, it's, it, I just find it. But when I was drinking, I thought it was, oh, okay, I'm just like all the other moms. So it's fine. It's normal. It's good. Alcohol is fine. You know, if I never got cancer, I would have never become an alcoholic. And that's a scary, scary truth. If I, the cancer destroyed me in every single aspect of my life, it destroyed me. I now can accept that I will never be the same. And going through the substances, going through the booze and all of that, coming out the other end, I now accept that about me. I am not going to be the same Candace that I was before I got cancer. 
It's not going to happen. So accept it, own it, and share it. Let other people know that they're not going to find themselves again either. You're just not going to. And you can try and drink yourself away. You can try and drink your feelings away or pop pills or do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, you have to face what it is that, you know, has gotten you to that place. But also, like I said, a very close friend of mine who is struggling with addiction. And I asked her, she's been an addict for a long time. And I asked her, can you accept the things that you have done while you were an addict? Can you accept that and move on? And she said, no. And I said, well, well you're, you're never, ever, ever going to be clean. Because I had to accept all the bad things I did, the bad moms that I was, the bad things I was doing to my body. I had to accept those. I couldn't, I couldn't drown them anymore. I had to face them. I had to be honest with myself and be like, okay, yeah, you sucked. I sucked. And it's done now. I can't change the past. I can't change the time that I miss with my children. I wish I could, but I can't. That's what hurts the most. If you can face the person that you were when you were an addict and come out the other side, then you're going to be okay. You'll be okay. But if you can't accept the things that you did while you were in that state, then you're just going to stay in that state. You're just going to stay in that cycle. You're just going to stay there. Sorry, see, I cry all the time. No sorry is needed. Uh, I think they say it's like the first three months is like your brain rewiring. And I would just be like crying all the time. And I just, that was a mess because I would just think about stuff. And I had, I've had friends tell me they don't remember any of their kids' birthdays because they're always wasted. Always. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I can't. And I was turning into that person. I was. And for me to still be here on this earth and healthy and, and surviving cancer and to still be here for my children, I wasn't going to destroy myself those. Like, what was I doing? You know? So when I do share it on social, like, on social media and stuff, I notice the lack of response. Or there is a response, but I also notice that, like, it makes people squirrely. They get all like, like, why is she talking about this? Like, you know, do I have a problem? And, you know, I used to be able to party and go on vacation, go to Cuba, all inclusive for a week in my 20s, drink and come home and not even think about it again. Not even think about it. But when you're in that state where, look up the definition of alcoholic. If that's you, then that's you. It doesn't matter how long it's been. <laughs> if you are that, then, then you're, you're, you are one. And you need to own it. And you need to either continue on that path or do something about it. And I wanted to stop so bad. 
for my kids, for for my for me. I wanted to be. I wanted to go back. I wasn't even working. I was so messed up. I was so messed up after cancer, and then I was drinking, and I was so messed up after cancer that I wasn't working, and I wanted to go back to work, and yeah. And now I am. I'm back there, and I'm back doing what I love. And my my children don't remember much about my cancer. They remember mommy being bald. And so I'm I'm very grateful for that. There was a lot of other really complicated dynamics in the relationships that I had while I had cancer that I can't get into. But they do remember me drinking. But they don't remember it like like I'm so glad I didn't keep up with it. Yeah. It it could have been so much worse. Yeah. Because because you're very vulnerable on your Facebook and you have your pictures of going through your cancer journey. I didn't know you looked at it. And then, you know, it's something that you said. You're a very caring person with your followers, too. Because I've noticed that you're like, I'll be right back. <laughs> you're oh. just so kind. Yeah. I try. I am because I always want people to know that because I know what it's like. I've lost the most important people in my life. Literally, the closest friends that I've had in my life I've lost because I don't know, because I wasn't who they wanted me to be when they wanted me to be that. And instead of them trying to help me, they shut me out just as much as I shut them out. So I'm sometimes a little bit bitter about that, but I have to also accept that they were just trying to live their lives. And, but I do have, I I have some bitterness about that. I'm just like, how could you just drop me? Thank I, I would try, I would reach out to them and, but I was, I was kind of flaky because if I couldn't drink, I didn't want to go, you know? And if they found out that I, I, you know, I was carrying booze in my purse, my fanny pack, I used to have a fanny pack and I used to carry booze in it. No matter where I was, I would be drinking. And it's so just like how you grow tolerance to pills, you grow tolerance to alcohol. And so I I could drink and I, you know, and I would always say, okay, I'm only going to drink this much today. Every single time I would go over every time and I would go through extreme lengths to get it. And I, I you know, like all these things combined, I was like this, I, I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm literally, I'm sick mentally. I'm sick physically. It's all because of the booze and it has to go. Just like how the pills had to go. But it's, I blame cancer for everything. I really do. It destroys people. It's a filthy, 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 dirty, dirty thing. And I can't stand it. And if it wasn't for that, there is so much that wouldn't have happened to me. Bad, bad things that wouldn't have happened to me. I don't, people try and like some people say, oh, it gave me a new a new lease on life that made me see things differently. And I'm like, no, man. Like, no, it destroyed me. I hate it. I, it gave me nothing. I was, I was happy. I was happy. I had two healthy children. 
I had my life was good. I had money in the bank. And when I got cancer, all of that was destroyed. Like I was part time. And so when I got cancer, I had no benefits. So I had nothing. So all of the savings that I had, everything I was, it destroyed me financially, physically, emotionally, mentally, every. So when people are like, oh, oh, about like, oh, you know, cancer. And and I'm like, no, I don't, I, I will never feel that way. I will never feel that way. But I do feel that way about getting sober. I do feel that way about getting sober because drinking the way I did and no longer drinking and becoming sober has definitely given me a new lease on life. That has made me appreciate my life more. That has made me appreciate my children and like all the, all the bad stuff that I feel about who I was while I was drinking still there. but. I, I thank booze for making me realize what I have in this life when I got sober, not while I was drinking. While I was drinking, I was just drinking to just bury everything. I just didn't want to feel, I just, I wanted to get to that, that point where you have your first one or two and you get that numb feeling and you're like, ah, 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 yeah. Everything's are great. Who cares? Great. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. And now I feel that way all the time. I don't need it. I have my cup of water, you know, and I, you know, and I, I'm happy. And I don't, and I have my hobbies and I have, you know, my interests and good. Life is good now. Yeah. It wasn't good for a long time. And I'm not who I was before cancer. I'm a different version of me. Maybe I'm better. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know if I'm better, but I'll never know. I'll never know, right? Because I, 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 I don't know who I would have been if I wouldn't have gotten cancer. So, but I'm happy. I'm happy I decided to stop drinking. And I would, I would recommend it to anybody. Really, I would. It's just, it just, the life sucker, money, time, experiences, emotion, like you don't feel things, you know, it's, uh, and then once you get out, you know, people have asked me like, you know, what was the hardest time? And I would say all the first week was the worst. And then after I got past the first week, I would be like, no, 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 no. The first month was the worst. And then no, 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 the first three months were the worst. And now I'm six months out, and and I I would I would probably say the first three months, the like the chocolate, like I, the cravings, like I would the sugar cravings that I was I was eating, and I was losing weight though, huge because I wasn't bloated because I used to drink beer mostly because that's what was really close to my house. I could run to the beer store in three minutes. And fill my fanny pack with cold shots and run back home. And down to before I got to my front door. Like it was ridiculous. I was, I was ridiculous. It was disgusting. And so here I am. In your beautiful, all your glory. 
because this needs to be told. You you will allow people with your story to give themselves permission to feel. Oh yes, this. Yeah, feel those feelings. That's what life's about. You know, emotions, experiences. They're all about feelings. And feelings is what gives us that nostalgia, you know, when you hear that song and it brings back a memory. Do you want that memory to be of you being wasted? Like, you know, or like stuff like that. Like, you know, and feelings are hard. Some feelings suck. And I say, I always say loneliness is the worst feeling in the world. But I can tell you, I was a really lonely person when I was drinking. And my, my friend was booze because all those people that I pushed away so I could have my friend's alcohol, they're all gone now. And that's what I have to thank booze for. Mm. You know, I was keeping company with alcoholics. They weren't my friends. They were drinking buddies. They were people who I could be around and not feel bad about myself because I was drinking. Because they were drinkers too. And they weren't friends. They were not my friends. They never were. And all my real friends are, some of them are still, some of them are still there. But for the most part, I think that's been the hardest part about getting sober is the realization that I've lost so many people. Because Mm -hmm. in that time frame with cancer and all of that, I, I lost so many people. Wow. Well, it'll be five years, June 27th. I celebrate my cancer anniversary the day I had my surgery. So even though I had chemo and radiation and everything after my surgery, I celebrate my cancer anniversary the day that I feel that they removed it from my body. The chemo and the radiation and the medication I still take for the next 10 years, I'm like four and a half years down. Four and a half to go. That's all. That was all to me precautionary. That I made sure I killed every cell or any cell that was trying to mutate. But I celebrate the day that they took my. And I live my life with one breast, guys. Yeah, she's very open but, about it. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm very open about it. I never hide it. I'm always like uni boob. I'm a unicorn. Like. That's it. What are you going to reconstruct? Like, what are you talking about? I breastfed two kids off this boob. How are you going to make this look like this? Like, and why am I going to take this one off? Poor girl. She never did anything to me. This one was the jerk. This one was the one that was trying to kill me. Leave her alone. Just let her stay there. She's happy. And, you know, I still get like checks and I still check and everything like that. And, you know, I live my life with one breast. And not a lot of women will will say that. Not a lot of women want to do that. They just, like, unheard of to them. Oh my gosh, why? Why don't you want, re- you can get a free boob job. Why do I want two mounds of saline with no nipples? I don't know if anybody knows that. But when you have reconstruction, you don't have a nipple. They can tattoo a nipple on. But I, I just didn't want that. And I've said this to many women who have had reconstruction. They don't get offended. If you want reconstruction, go ahead. Like, you know, but for me, meh, I have one boob. 
I don't even wear a prosthetic. I should, I could show you one, but it's over there. I'm not getting up. I could, I, they're called little knitted knockers. I could stuff one in there, but I never do because the skin is sensitive and I don't, meh, I, I just don't bother. I just live my life with one boob, man. Yeah. If it bothers you, if it bothers you that much, don't look at me. <laughs> so let me ask you, I want to ask you one, one last question that I love to ask because it's unique to every person's story. What would you say to someone on their day zero that could possibly be sharing the same story right now and feel like they're alone? What would you say to them? I promise you, I promise you, you are not going to feel this way forever. I know that at this moment, you feel like this is never going to get better, that there's not going to be, you're not going to see the light again, that you're always going to feel like this, feel like crap in every way. But I promise you that it's going to get better. I know it's, that used to be my thing. I used to be like, when am I going to feel better? When am I going to feel better? When is these feelings going to go away? When am I going to feel better? And I promise you, it may be different for everybody, but you will be happy in your life without it. I guarantee it. You will. It's just going to take some time. So in the meantime, do whatever you need to do to stay away from boobs. Mine was like slushies, like I said, and like all that, whatever. Eat whatever you want. Just do whatever you need to do and connect with people who you can share your sobriety with and who are going to understand it. People always said to me, go to a meeting, that I wasn't ready for a meeting. I was one month sober before I went to my first meeting. So even if it's a friend, like that one, that one family member that I had, she was the only one who truly knew my struggles. And when I needed to, I would reach out to her. But promise you, you will feel better again. I know right now you don't feel good and you feel like you should just pick up another drink, but don't do it. Don't. It gets better. You will feel better. I promise you. Like, I, 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 if I could, yeah, because I just remember that mindset you're in where you're like, oh my God, I'm going to feel awful forever. You won't. I promise you won't. I've talked. I talk a lot. No. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> you talk beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. So these are the words, listeners, from what Candace said. Very profound. Look for her on her social media. We will list the links. And she's a shining star of hope. Look for her. Thank you so much, Candace. Thank you, Ben. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, tell a friend or someone you know. Pass this podcast on. And my information is Viv, founder of Sober, I Thrive, 
www.addictionrecovery.org. I'm an internationally certified in addiction recovery, other known as a sober coach and a life coach too. My certifications encompass the neuroscience of joyful recovery, roots of addictions, alcohol and its effects, dynamics of professional recovery coaching, motivation to change, right thinking in recovery, family issues in recovery, codependent behaviors in addiction, and ethical and legal issues in professional recovery coaching. Go to my website, soberithrive.org, and book your free, confidential, 30-minute call. We can help create the sober warrior within you.